Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time, a project of Jofa UK designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. If you'd like to sponsor or dedicate an episode of Your Torah, please get in touch via our website, which can be found at ukjofa.org. This is Dina Weiss. I'm the Rosh Beit Midrash at the Hadar Institute, which is a center for higher Jewish learning for all genders based in New York City. I'm excited to teach you a little bit about Masechet Arachin, the tractate that deals with valuations. The word Erech in Hebrew means value, but when you see this word in the Torah, it's in Vayigra, Chaf Zayin, Bet through Chet, Leviticus 27, 2 through 8, you see that the word is spelled with two chafs at the end. Erech would be value, and erkach, or erkacha, is how it's written in the Torah, which probably refers to a more abstract form of value, which we'll call valuation. Um, and what I mean by this is that I can take a pledge and offer the value of something to the temple. So let's say there's a cow there, and that cow on the market will be worth 200 zoos, I would pledge the value of the cow and I would pay 200 zoos to the temple. But when we're talking about arachin, when we're talking about valuations, we actually have abstract standard valuations for different categories of people. The tractate of arachin is found within the seder, within the order of kodoshim, of things that are sanctified, and it falls into the discussion of things that I might want to sanctify and give over to the temple. What's interesting about Arachin is that on the one hand, these values are fixed. If I am a man between the ages of 20 and 60, my valuation is going to be 50 shekel. There's nothing I can do about that. This is the abstract valuation for an adult male. But on the other hand, it's also flexible because even though I might be an adult man, I could pledge the value of someone else. I could pledge the value of a young girl to the temple and only be required to pay the valuation for a much younger person. For better or for worse, the valuations as they are described in the Torah follow two parameters. One is the parameter of age and the other is the parameter of gender. And the more in the prime of life you are, the more of a full adult you are, the more expensive your valuation will be, the more you command on the market. And a man will always be worth more money in this valuation system than a woman. So to give you an example, if we're talking about a person between the ages of 20 and 60, a man is, as I said before, given the valuation of 50, and a woman of the same age will be given the value of 30. And as you continue through the rest of the brackets, you see that this pattern continues. Between the ages of 5 and 20, men are worth 20 and women are worth 10. Between the ages of 30 days and 5 years old, you can't give the valuation of somebody who's younger than 30 days old. Men command 5 shekel and women command 3. And when you get to the age of 60 plus, when you're sort of at retirement age, the valuation goes down again. Men are considered to have the valuation of 15 shekel and women are considered to have the valuation of 10. To give you a greater sense of what's going on in the rest of the tractate and the rest of Masagat Arachin, 
for the most part, it actually does stay fairly localized around pledges that I might make to the temple and how these pledges are like or unlike the type of arachin pledge that is the focus. So it will contrast different kinds of vows and different kinds of pledges with the process of devoting one's arachach or arachacha, one's valuation. An example of this is if I wanted to redeem my field, there are all these different questions about how I would do that. What it would mean if I were to say I'm going to pledge my value versus my valuation. And the tractate deals with a lot of these marginal cases. What happens if I get older by the time I need to pay my pledge? What happens if I get more wealthy or less wealthy? And part of the structure of the payment of my pledge was based on what my own net worth was, how much I was able to pay. The exception to this rule of the tractate really being very focused on giving pledges to the temple are chapters two and three. In chapters two and three, the Mishnah does what it actually often does. It will use a kind of mnemonic paradigm. I'll explain to you what I mean by that in a moment. And to explain something in its own realm of conversation, in our case, valuations, and then it will move to discuss other areas of Jewish law where I could teach a law based on this kind of shorthand. So for example, in the third chapter, it says there are things about arachin where there are components lahachamir to make things more strict and components lahakel to make things less strict. And since we're talking about things that have this component of there's an element of strictness and an element of laxity, the Mishnah will continue to list from all different realms of halacha different areas that fit into this paradigm, different laws that also can be seen through the lens of to be strict and to be less strict. And one of the reasons why the Mishnah does this is because the Mishnah is, as I mentioned earlier when I used the word mnemonic, something that is designed to be memorized. And so one of the things the Mishnah really likes to do is to clump like things together which will enable you to remember it. So sometimes the Mishnah in itself, in certain chapters, will create lists that fit in the same paradigm so that somebody who is reciting and memorizing Mishnah can have all of the laws that fit in the same paradigm together in one run, in one list, and be able to remember it. And what I wanted to teach you about is a Mishnah that appears in chapter two, and as you listen to it, you'll realize this has nothing to do with valuations in the temple. And you will be correct. It has nothing to do with valuations in the temple. The reason why it's brought in is because it fits into the paradigm of the way that these Mishnayot are being taught in this chapter of Ein Pochatin, we don't do less than, the Ein Mosifin, we don't do more than. Right. So it's a series of Mishnayot that talk about things that have sort of a flexible number, but it will never go beneath a certain number and never go above a certain number. So what I wanted to learn with you today is the last Mishnah in the second parak, Mishnah Vav, Mishnah number six, which talks about the minimum and maximum number of Leviim who are going to be participating in the musical component of the temple service. Ein pochatin mishnei masar Leviim umdim al haduchan. We do not have less than 12 Levi'im standing on the platform, the sort of stage in the temple. 
but we can have up to an infinite number of Leviim. Right, so even though there's a minimum for my choir of Leviim, that there's at least 12 voices, I could have a choir of 300, a thousand, a million Leviim all singing together in the temple, whatever space allows. And then the Mishnah continues. Ein katan nichnas la'avoda. Generally, a child, someone who is below the age of majority, does not go into the temple precincts to do service, right? Generally, when we think about such a high stakes procedure as serving God in the temple, we're not going to allow children to take on a significant role. It's just too dangerous. It's not right for them at that age. But the exception to this principle of keeping the children out of the service is the singing. We actually do invite the children in to sing. Ella bashir. The only exception to this rule of keeping the children out is at the time when the Leviim are singing. And when we say that the children are allowed to join the singing, we don't mean that they're allowed to play the instruments, the navel and chinor. We mean that they're allowed to sing, And the reason why they do that is in order to add a little spice to the song, to the melody, meaning we want to have some altos, but we also want to have some sopranos, right? So we want to get in among the adult tenors and basses, some younger children who are going to be the alto and soprano parts, and they're going to add some dimension, some beauty to the singing of the Levine. Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov Omer, ain't olin liminyan but they don't count for the number of minimum Leviim we have. We can't have six adult Leviim and six children. We need to have 12 adult Leviim plus whatever children are there to contribute to the harmony. They ain't omdim al but these children also don't stand on the platform. omdin, rather they would stand on the earth, right there on the ground. And their heads sort of pop up to be kind of at the knees of the Levim, because the Levim are on this raised platform, the children are standing on the ground beneath them, and their heads sort of come up to the legs of the adults. And they were called the Tso'arim of the Levim. And there's a dispute about what the word Tso'arim means, Tzadi, Vav, Ayin, Resh, one interpretation of this is that it just means tzair, it just means young, that these children were called kind of Levi'im in training, they were called CITs, and we would refer to them as tzoare Levi'im. This would be parallel to a term that we have for young kohanim, we call young kohanim pirchei kuhuna, the sort of sprouts of priesthood. So we also have this cute name for the children who sing with the Levi'im. But there's another interpretation about this, which is that so'ar reha levi'im comes from the word sa'ar. It comes from the word pain. Um, and there's something about having these children here that make the levi'im annoyed. Maybe it's hard for them to manage children. Maybe they're jealous that they used to have these really high, sweet voices, and now their voices dropped and they don't have those sweet voices anymore. I find this dispute, well, first of all, I find this whole scene um, to be extremely beautiful and also very exciting. You know, there's not a lot that remains from the temple service that we do. 
and certainly not a lot of the temple service that I feel personally excited about participating in. But the idea of there being this like really beautiful choir um, that has adult voices and children's voices and there's as many people as you can fit, I find to be really beautiful and really inspirational. And I also really like this machloket, I really like this dispute about how the adults felt about these children. Did they find them to be annoying or did they find them to be exciting? Was it great to have these children there to make the song more beautiful or was it a hassle? Was it something that actually caused people some pain when they remembered how they were in their youth? And I think about this Mishnah a lot when I think about the conversation around children being present in shul. Do we want to have a lot of children, you know, sort of making noise and making their presence felt in the shul? And there's two really valid, I think, approaches to whether we want to have children in shul. There are some people who feel like children are distracting. They are so arim. They actually make it difficult for me to concentrate on my davening. And having them there is distracting from what is the most important component of shul, which is the adults being able to have their tefillah. But there's another perspective on children in shul, which is, it's great. Let's bring the children, as many children as we want. We're not going to have them be on the platform. They're not going to be leading the services. But having them there really enhances the service and trains them to be excited about what it means to be part of the davening community, what it means to be part of the adult community when they eventually get older. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjofa.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.